1: Hello, I'm your host Cheryl Jones and I want to welcome you to Good Grief where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today I'm talking with Mariana Cacciatore. Mariana is an author and public speaker. Her book, Being There for Someone in Grief, has been used as a guide for hospice volunteers and as a textbook for spiritual directors. It was endorsed by Stephen Levine, Mark Nepo, Wayne Muller, and Parker Palmer. She's just completed the manuscript for her second book, The Way of Love, Generosity, and Grief, an intimate portrayal of stitching the heart back together. She was the founding executive director of the philanthropic organization Bread for the Journey, From 1998 to 2014, she directed the development of Bread for the Journey from a single chapter in Santa Fe, New Mexico, to a national organization with the capacity to create affiliate chapters throughout the U.S. She serves as a lifetime emeritus board member of Tu Nidito, Your Little Nest, the parent agency for the organization she founded in 1990 called Children to Children a center for children and families in grief. Tuna Tito is in Tucson, Arizona, where it remains one of the most beloved and effective social service agencies in southern Arizona. Welcome, Mariana. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to have you, and I was telling you before we went on that you hold the record for being with me the most number of times of any guest, um, which is four... Uh, the first one, of course, was my f- very first show, and you interviewed me so that I could share my story uh, with with listeners as a starting point. And then, of course, I had you on talking about being there for someone in grief. And then as you were just starting the work that you're doing now, just getting into it on, on um, love, grief, and generosity... We got together and talked about that, but you've taken it much, much further now, and so we'll get a chance to talk about what you're doing these days. That's right. A couple of years has passed
2: since that last interview, if I remember right.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's right. So let's mm-hmm. set this. Let's set the stage. You know, of course, uh, your first book had to do with working at Tunadito and also your own grief. Um, And that sort of led uh, gradually but unmistakably to this work on generosity. Can you make that connection for the listeners?
2: Sure, I can. Um, It just sort of happened naturally for me. I I didn't even know it was occurring, nor did I know that I needed that piece of information. Um, I had moved to San Francisco, left Tucson, where I had been working in the field of grief for several years, and um, I was going through a divorce, and I was back in the heart of grief myself, and, and um just felt like I needed another pathway for my work. And so I just prayed to God and said, you know, I don't know what I need to do next, but I know you do. So mm-hmm. please guide me, and I will go on job interviews, I'll pay close attention to my inner green light and red light, and um, all that really matters to me is that it be work that make a difference in the quality of life on Earth. That had been a commitment I had made in my late 20s, a career commitment. And so, um, long story short, I landed this job as executive director of Bread for the Journey, which was transforming from a small chapter in Santa Fe, New Mexico, to a national organization, and they needed somebody to be able to open these affiliate chapters around the country, and they would all be run by volunteers who were at a place in their life where they recognized that giving back is part of a life well lived. And our whole philosophy that Wayne Muller had created um, in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and it had been well established, that small chapter had been running for 10 years was to really give small grants away to ordinary people doing extraordinary things for the community um, and give them give that away with, with no strings attached and not a lot of paperwork. And um, it really was work that taught all of us, um, volunteer and staff alike, th- what the inner journey of generosity was all about because it involves... Developing deeper and deeper trust in your ability to, um, you know, do a due diligence, for example, on somebody asking for money, but have it be kind of an inner due diligence rather than
1: one based in
2: paper. And that's intriguing.
1: Um, what do you mean by inner due diligence? Well, that that phrase know, catches my attention.
2: attention. Somebody, let's just say there was somebody that was wanting to. Um, And there was one woman, for example, in Santa Fe, New Mexico. She was driving under an underpass. She wanted, she saw a homeless man. Um, she had, the winter was beginning. She had this thought that she wanted to, um, she wondered if he had a sleeping bag, a warm sleeping bag to sleep in. She pulled over right at the side of the road, went and had a conversation with him and began a a journey in which she ended up. Through Bread for the Journey, getting enough money to purchase a hundred sleeping bags that were sub-zero weather. And all these community people were involved. The person who owns the store that sells the sleeping bags gave their discount. Bread for the Journey gave the money for the sleeping bags. She went back to the man who she met by the side of the road. They found a way to connect. And he was the one who helped her distribute the sleeping bags. It was really a Everything we did was about community. But rather than having her fill out a grant proposal with us, she simply called or sent an email. We set up a time. This is the group in Santa Fe to meet with her over a cup of coffee. She tells this story. And meanwhile, the volunteers are doing an inner due diligence. Is this the right Thing we want to fund? Is this the right person to do the job? Is this something the community needs? Is this the right amount of money? Um, and so that's what inner due diligence is. I hope that's clear.
1: It is, and uh, and it connects with uh, almost every guest I've had on this show in the sense that, you um, when generosity, we may be leaping ahead in the in our talk a little bit, but uh, in my mind, when generosity is coming out of grief, you've come through something, and then you want to give, it tends to be somewhat non linear. Uh, you know, it feels right, and maybe you can come up with a huge, you know, justification and a twenty page grant proposal, but it's not quite the gear that I think comes out of that kind of creative leap. Um, that's right, is there, that's right. Uh, it's, it's a, it's, go ahead. Go, go ahead, yeah. It's
2: generosity that is sourced in something um, that came out of their grief story. And what I think is true is that when people actually are courageous enough to walk through their grief... Um, there are a few things that happen. Um, one is that they develop a kind of humility that they didn't. You know they might have been already humble people, but there's something that happens when you're when you really kind of are leveled. In in a way that you can be in the deep dark night of grief, and you anything that has to do with hierarchy kind of disappears, and you you realize that we're we're all in this together, that we're all vulnerable in the same way, and that we all have the capacity to love in the same way, and and hierarchies disappear, so there's humility that develops, and then. And then there's a compassionate heart that gets opened further. And once again, you might already be a compassionate person going into your you know, grief experience, but something deeper happens that opens it further. And it's that combination of humility and compassion kind of has you seeing people who need things in a different light. And it really does facilitate an inner due diligence. Um, and, and some things become less important. Again, we gave small grants, so it was easy to not, you know, have to meet the kind of requirements that larger foundations, you know, you do rightly so. Um, so, but, but what we were doing really was the work of, of nurturing a heart that has the capacity to give at a greater and greater degree and, and I think that we come into the world as, as little infants that are filled with love and our first act of generosity is extending that love out into the world. We don't know we're doing it. It's done on a deeply unconscious level, but it's part of our basic human nature, our basic human goodness. And as we, as we walk through life, if we, um, Well, what happens is we get hurt in in all kinds of ways. We get hurt. And it's natural for us to kind of put a little protection over that heart. You don't want to walk around completely exposed all the time. But if we're not paying close attention to ways in which we can unpeel that protection and be in the world in a more open way, that, that armor that was once protecting us now starts hurting us. We get more... Crusty in a certain way, mm. and we trust less. So, so when we when when we walk through a grief experience and we um, touch in on that the, the the impulse to be generous, and then we act in ways that opens that generosity further. We're bringing ourselves back to experiencing love at the most grand level that is available to us know the kind of love we came in with and we want to be as close to that as we can you know at the end of our life as well but, but but, with a consciousness with an awareness with you know doing it by
1: choice right for sure you're you're you call that in one of your um descriptions boundless love right which i like i i like right. the sound of that boundless love right it also does sound, though, like um, there's a timing element that we're talking about between the lines that, in a way, uh, I'm thinking of it at the moment uh, as, and maybe thinking from my own experience, there's a sense in which I had to, to, to find that boundless love, I had to apply it to myself first. Uh, I, I had to kind of make room for my own pain, my own difficulty, uh, and f- in fact, I did a lot of giving that wasn't particularly generous when I was very young. Mm-hmm. You know, right. that kind of kind right. of uh, went in a bad direction. You know, right. overgiving I mean, and all of that right. is, and is that factored <laughs> in here? And for wrong reasons sometimes. I mean, you you don't pick that way without maybe some generosity in there somewhere, but it it so went the wrong direction sometimes. And I see that in many other people. So how do you cultivate that generosity without, you know, while watching out for that?
2: Right. Well, one of the things I used to say to our volunteers is um, that mistakes are really valuable things. They are the way we learn. And so I don't think anything is a real mistake, but I think you hit the nail on the head right in the beginning when you said I have to pay attention to how I'm treating myself. And, you know, I think this living is like a practice. It's always a practice of being Mm -hmm. as aware and awake as we possibly can to this present moment. And I believe that life is always guiding and teaching us how to live it. And that, it, and that with this dance of um, caring for others and caring for ourselves is really a lifelong dance that we can, with awareness, see where we are, start where we are, and then make course corrections as we need to. Like, we all have different life experiences that put us in different places on this continuum. And sure. some people have given away way too much in their life, and they need to be kind of alert to that and make sure that they're doing giving that is really appropriate giving. And then at the other end of the spectrum, there are some people who who just are tight, really, have held on to everything they have. And the ability to give is very difficult for them. So their starting point is at the other end of the spectrum, you might say. Um, The the key is always to increase our awareness of this present moment and, and always to be kind and gentle to ourselves to the greatest degree that we can as we look at ourselves and move.
1: One thing that you say, which I want to talk more about, we may, uh, you know, just begin it and come back to it after the break, is uh, grief, which you're defining as a multitude of painful emotions brought about by loss. And for myself, I might add some positive emotions, too, like remembrance and, um, oh, that's true. you know, some other things like that. But, um it's the hard parts that kind of chip us down. Fosters love in a hidden way, right? Could you speak more about the hidden way? Right.
2: You know that we are a species that um, that pushes, that wants to not feel pain. In, you know the, the any <laughs> we get any <anything laughs> close to pain. And we're just like, uh, the motion is our hands are right out with that big stop sign, you know, like pushing it away. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so when grief comes knocking at the door, boy, you know, I mean, sometimes it's overwhelming. You can't even avoid it. But if there's any control that we could exercise at all, most of us would try- just push it away. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so it takes kind of a, a shift in, Seeing to, to come to understand that this grief is actually something that, when felt, ha- opens, opens us to a greater kind of love. Um, it's, it seems counterintuitive that something so painful can bring us to something so grand as love. But it does, and a lot of it has to do with the not resisting mm-hmm. and uh, loving yourself as much as you can through the darkest times and and trusting in something trusting in what i 'm saying, basically you know you, if you know that this is true, then as you move through those dark places, you know you know it 's not forever. You know you're not going to stay here. You know you're not going to go down into a dark hole and never come out, which is what the, you know, adults who are in grief say over and over. And I know you know this as a therapist. Yes. And I see it yes. all the time in support groups. Am I ever going to be sane again? Am I ever going to come out of this? Am I going crazy? Am I going crazy?
1: Yeah. Uh-huh. Um
2: Right. Yeah, so let's let's know, come back to that in a journey. minute
1: because we, Mariana, we've got to take a break, but I want to continue with that when we come back because this idea of um, embracing or inviting the the true, what is truly going on, even if it's painful, and that leading to love is is so basic and deep to me. So let's come back to that more when we when we resume. And listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. And you can find Mariana Cacciatore at Mariana Cacciatore. That's M-A-R-I-A-N-N-A-C-A-C-C-I-A-T-O-R-E dot com. Be back soon.
3: Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.
1: We're on the cutting edge of social media.
0: Can you keep up? We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, Blackberry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, Blackberry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones.
1: Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here with Mariana Cacciatore, uh, who is who is planning actually a nine-month training in the way of love, generosity, and grief, and has written two books actually on uh, on grief, the second with that same title. And before the break, Mariana, we were talking about this uh the importance of opening to all the feelings you have in grief and how that kind of cracks open love. And you had made the comment, human beings resist pain. <laughs> that made me think of, um, I you know, uh i've i've interviewed lots of people one one of the and everyone has a different idea about these same things we're talking about i uh, i love it so much uh i interviewed a man named francis weller uh and then i went to a a, a grief ritual with him i was uh, i just felt it would be a good thing <laughs> to go to his grief ritual and it was fabulous he in part, he uses a lot of different things, but one thing is a grief, parts of a grief ritual from uh, a small community in Africa in which they actually invite those feelings together as a community. Right. And and they would never think of skipping that. So there's right. also a cultural overlay right. <laughs> here. Do you think, or uh, oh, or do you I think somehow they just help each other pass the resistance? Uh, you know, it, it appears that way.
2: I have not traveled to other parts of the world where I actually had an opportunity to see that. But I know that um, Maladoma Somme and Sabunfo Sommet talk often about that. And I think they were uh, Francis's teachers that taught him that process that he now uses here in America, to help people begin to shift their ideas about um, how to approach our grief and um, move through it?
1: One thing that, uh, yes, that's true, and I also uh, spent some time with them years and years ago when I was in grief after my wife's death. Um, And interestingly, uh, this idea that love gets broken open by grief, imagine when you're grieving visibly and deeply and passionately and loudly in a community of people. That is just something that doesn't happen by and large.
2: Right, uh, and, and we don't have a framework for even holding that, you know.
1: That's right, but I'll tell you, at the end of that weekend, I was in love with those people.
2: Mm-hmm. Right, right. You know, right. In, in some because kind they are, of very on that journey. Mm-hmm.
1: Exactly. So that's that's a piece of this too, which I was thinking about when when reading all your materials for your mm. um, training because. There is something about grieving in community and connecting in community that's a little bit irreplaceable, yeah?
2: Yeah, it is. We desperately need each other. You know, I like to say we all have within us everything we need except one another. Mm. And, you know, we live in a society that reflects back, if we look at what we see on TV, what it reflects back is the worst part of our human nature most of the time. And um I'm I'm not just talking about horrible news, but but you know, our addiction to watching, me included sometimes, you know, television shows that are just like horrible and you step back and you go, Is this this is what we're calling entertainment today? Anyway, and you know, it reflects back the worst part of our human nature and yet when you look around at just ordinary people, at least in my world especially for years working at Prepared uh, for the journey, I got to see just the opposite. You know, the 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 better part of human nature—people wanting to do something for each other, even the smallest thing, like open a door help somebody put groceries in their car and get up the stairs or help a neighbor. I mean, there's a million ways in which we are kind and generous that don't get reflected back to us. So Mm -hmm. in the culture that we live in today. So when we put ourselves actually in community with people who are working together to be as honest and real as we can be, and to particularly in the case of the workshop that you went to move through some of the darkest stuff that we, we need each other to help, um, be a, 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 an accurate reflection um, then yeah what, 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 op- you know, what opens in that place is a tremendous amount of uh, uh, hopefulness really about the human race and love and care and a desire to want to be of service you know you get to see parts of humanity that you don't see ordinarily in our daily life um, or that we're not aware of it in such high relief as we are when we walk through something like that with a community of people. And oftentimes, you know, workshop aside, you know, people will say, you know, I, I, I mean, I just have such a deep appreciation for my friends when I got that diagnosis of breast cancer. You know, people came out of the woodwork and people, as I was going through chemo, were bringing me food and and I have such, and even the people who sent me just a card in the mail and I felt their love and their connection, um, I appreciate them in a, such a profound way that I didn't before this experience,
1: Right. So 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 true, and the opposite—that people that are, uh, I guess, we'll use the the word resistant to the pain right. break connection in a more profound way than they ever have in those circumstances. Right. Of course, I run support groups for women with cancer, so, so, so you know, and a, a lot bit of
2: more about what you mean there.
1: Um uh if you don't some people me some people question. will some people will literally disappear uh-huh. uh, some people will right. literally disappear some people will and i i am not arguing with what you're saying some people will show up in a beautiful and profound way that maybe they never did before but right. there it it is painfully true that if people are afraid of their own grief they can't show up that's right. That's absolutely right. And That's and actually, they'll right. and they'll tend to get uh they'll they'll tend to deliver platitudes. Uh oh you're strong, you'll get through this, you know. Um uh God has a better plan whatever it is. Right. That that breaks the connection between them and the person who's in so much pain because they've just been diagnosed. Right. Right. Um so I think I think it can it has the potential with us humans to kind of go both ways. That's does that right. it's, does it's, that uh, illuminate what I was talking about?
2: Yeah, yeah, and yeah, I, I, exactly. And you know what I was saying earlier is, you know, we come in as pure love and then life happens and we get hurt and we apply these layers of protection so that so that we never get hurt again. And so that the pain that we're feeling is somehow dampened, right? And Mm -hmm. so with each hurt, another layer, with each hurt, another layer, until at some point we don't even, you know, we're so far away from knowing what it is we feel um, Mm -hmm. that we create these kind of ways, uh, cliches and platitudes to make it through the day. And...
1: Yes, and and also that's... When we say what we've, what someone else put in our heads, we've lost the creative spirit of it.
2: Well, yeah, we can't feel, so we're, that, that that protection, it has stopped us from being able to really feel what is true and accurate. And it is the work of personal growth workshops, the work of going into therapy. It's the work of, it's what you do when you when you sign up for any of those that are really real uh, journeys into the heart mm-hmm. of. Whatever it is that um, mm-hmm. has distorted in some way our um, mm-hmm. ability to feel all of what life has given us and know that we can come out of it, you know, as, as happier people and healthier people and more compassionate people and more approachable people or generous people. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have to, we have to take some risks. Um, sometimes they're small risks, sometimes they're larger risks, Um, but we have to take some risks to walk through our pain in order to unfeel those layers. We all have them. You know, it's how we make it through the day, right?
1: (laughs) Yes, I I would say so. I was very intrigued by one thing you say here, uh, and we move from saying, how can I help, to saying, how can I be a companion to you on your journey? which right. to me has a very um, egalitarian quality, I guess. Yeah,
2: you know, they're similar. We, are- we all say, how can I help, right? Um, and there's nothing wrong with saying, how can I help at all? But when you, when you understand the, the other sentence, how can I be a companion to you on your journey? The subtle difference is I recognize that you are on your journey and and what you need to do is be on your journey. And I'm, you know, that stops me from giving you advice, for example. Um, But, but instead I'm going to companion you on your journey. I'm going to hold a candle of faith that you have everything you need, except another person to walk with you or a group of us to walk with you. And so I will be that. I will be your companion and I will be here for you to to, to hold you up when you need to be held up. I will trust you to ask for what you need. Um, if that's a particular challenge for you, we'll find ways for you to do it in the easiest way possible. Um, I'm gonna, I'm, but I am going to trust that you have what, within you what you need and that you'll move to a healthy place. Let me walk with you on this journey. Really powerful. And, you know, for people who have a tendency to be helpers and give away way too much, it's a beautiful rephrasing because it because it really subtly, more than subtly, I think it actually overtly says, "I I believe this is your journey, not mine, and I am going to walk by your well, side."
1: And the other thing it says is, "I don't know where we're going." Uh, you well, know, that's true. That's, co- that's companion true. to me implies we're in it together neither one of us really knows where it's gonna go. Yeah. Which is Beautiful. uh, you know, as you phrased it, a mature humility.
2: Right.
1: Uh not thinking too little of yourself nor too much, not giving yourself a power maybe you don't have. Right. Uh, exactly. Exactly. So so uh I get the idea from everything that I've that I've read that you truly believe that these qualities not only are they kind of natural and you may encounter them naturally in the process of a deep grief an opening grief but that they can be cultivated Oh, I that, think that they are. Uh, yeah, that's very... That, that, uh, that people can actually be invited more deeply into this maybe a little sooner? Uh, let's talk about that some. Um, you know, of course, any... When, when
2: you say any, that, you
1: mean sooner than
2: sooner than they might
0: have?
1: Then they might have. Yeah. That That uh, somehow... Making this connection, and I guess we could we could hypothesize that people that would be drawn to do the work are ready to do it, <laughs> you know. But right, um, right. but still, the idea that we can actively make that connection visible to people.
2: Right. You know, I, we grieve for all kinds of things. Let's just kind of start there. You know, we I mean we we talk. Often you hear the word grief, and you automatically think that we're grieving a death of someone, and that's a rather big loss if it's someone very close to us. But there are tons of ambiguous losses that we have in our life. You know, um, some, some, some um, can be even. Outcast pieces of ourselves, you know like for example, we might have had a a difficult relationship with our body our entire life, and so the loss is that we didn't really love ourselves and love the shape of our body well through our whole life, and when that we become aware of that, the loss is profound, but it's not um, but it happens. You can begin to deal with it in small ways, um, so it's not so overwhelming. You, mm. you, do you know what I mean? As you begin yes. to touch in on the pain, um, they can. You know, there's, there are lots of losses that we have. So, so this practicing, this idea of practicing, is really about a way of life. It's about recognizing that there are there is I mean, you can even take the word grief and loss out of it and just call it suffering, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I happen to think that at the bottom of all of our suffering is a it's all about loss, you know, we get to I happen to it, agree with that. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I I use the language of loss, but whenever there is something that arises that is causing us suffering, to practice in some small way to open to that suffering. I mean, I don't think we ever want to do something so dramatic that it causes us to rubber band back. So I'm talking about this as a way of life, which is why, by the way, you know, I feel like doing teaching this over the course of nine months, the way I've set up my classes, gives people an opportunity to, you know, we come together um, on a Saturday afternoon Twice a month, and we meet for three hours, and I give a, a, you know some material, and then people have two whole weeks to feel it, to assimilate it, to apply it to parts of their life, and then th- they come back two weeks later, and there's the same group of us, you know, and you can talk about what happened in that two weeks and what Absolutely. arose and what you resisted, and we've got a whole community of people supporting and loving and caring for you, creating a safer and safer container for us to do that work. And, you know, in an ideal situation, somebody would have had experience working with the smaller losses of their life before they are hit with a profound, big loss. You know, Mariana... We don't control this, but, you know. Yeah.
1: You've you've led quite naturally to the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is which is what you're, uh, you know, what you're planning these workshops and how you're, how you're going to do it. But we're going to talk about that after the break. <laughs> so we'll be back in a couple of minutes. This is Cheryl Jones. You can go to my website, uh, or, or, uh, which is weatheringgrief.com or to my page at Voice America to look up everything about me and connect with me. And to find Mariana Cacciatore, go to M-A-R-I-A-N-N-A-C-A-C-C-I-A-T-O-R-E, com. Back after the break.
3: Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Real life solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness.
1: I've been here talking with Mariana Cacciatore. She's the author of Being There for Someone in Grief and the Way of Love, Generosity, and Grief. And she is planning a nine-month training. I'm assuming it's going to be basically people near you there in Tucson. Yes, Mariana? Yes,
2: yes, yes absolutely.
1: Um, but I think um, what we're talking about more broadly has to do with how people can allow and make space for their losses and their difficulties, their suffering, right. and and connect with each other. And I thought it would be very helpful and useful to, for you to talk about how you plan on bringing that out in people, how you plan on helping them get to those – I'm assuming – first the grief you know then then the invitation for generosity although of course when people share grief they become generous with each other pretty quickly right. but can you talk some about the format and how how you're going to do this thing well you know there's
2: something about life itself that really helps us we don't have to figure every single little thing out with our <laughs> limited human mind uh, isn't brain. it true <laughs> Uh, so when I, well, just uh, to answer that question, I'll tell you a little story. When I wrote the book, I definitely had it in this very logical format, just like you spoke about. Okay, first we need to go into the grief, and then, and there was this whole section on the, the, what I call the turning, and it's that it's turning from grief to um, reinvesting in life and noticing those generous impulses that arise when we become awake again to the blue sky and the incredible way the sun hits that tree in our yard and so on and so forth. And um, and then there's a the whole section on generosity and then how that all sort of opens up to this, the generosity sort of become these acts of generosity become these stepping stones to an expansion of of love within us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but then, once I had the whole book finished and I was going through it on a in a paper version and walking through this idea that kept coming to my head: this is stiff, this is just a little too. It's almost like it's unlike life. Life is all mixed up. Uh-huh. And so um, I had remembered working with a woman named Jane Brunette who lives in Bali. She's a writing coach and she works with people around the country on Skype. And she had said to me, reading an early version of the manuscript, she said, you know, when you get finished writing this book, why don't you just take each chapter and shuffle them like a deck of cards huh. and then go back yeah. and take a look at where you are, and, which actually I ended up doing. And so what I'm doing for the nine-month training is I'm following the guideline of the book. So every week, um, you know, they'll get two weeks in advance, they'll get two chapters in consecutive order. And they'll receive the chapters in advance. They'll have a couple of weeks to read them, to think about them and then we'll come in and we'll work with them in that particular session. And so in that way, if you were to really look at the book, um, it, it is, everything is happening at the same time. Like the opening session is, uh, it is the power, chapter called The Power of Love, which has two very profound stories, one about love and one about uh, loss. Um but both of them are talking about the power of love within both of those experiences. Mm-hmm. So we we just they're gonna dive in right from day one, jumping right into the deep end. But we'll be touching on these subjects and then experiencing them, coming back and talking again and then they get to go away and experience them again in a safe container of a small group of people who will work together through the whole nine months because generosity, I mean, we may be in the middle of our grief and we may not uh, even have the capacity to imagine one little stepping out in a generous way. However, the art of generosity involves in equal measure giving and receiving and when we're in deep grief and we've got a community of people even a small community of people who know us and love us we are showered with gifts and we do feel an incredible amount of gratitude and our capacity to receive sometimes is even challenged and so all of that is part of the generous cycle and so in that way everything is mixed up in the book
1: So a few things come to my mind. One, I just want to make sure I heard you right, that you actually, your writing coach suggested that you throw the (laughs) chapters up in the air and let them fall. And how they fell is how the book ended up being structured. Did I hear that right? (laughs) I think that's so fabulous.
2: <laughs> I'm so being a fabulous. little bit metaphorical. I kind of did that but of course, you know, you have I mean, I yeah, I'm a writer, and then you so. worked
1: with it. But the uh, idea yeah, that that could it. happen right. is quite that's wonderful. Right. And it reminds me of a uh a little cartoon someone sent me where there is a uh, like a bell curve and it had, like, points of grief along the bell curve, kind of uh-huh. like the old stages of grief thing. Right, right. Uh, and, it, and it was captioned, uh, how grief is described, something like that. And next to it was a tangled mess of yarn, basically. <laughs> uh, I'm saying yarn because I'm a knitter. You know, it was as if someone undid the whole skein of yarn and just tangled it up and made a big old mess. And uh, then it said at the top of that, how grief is. <laughs> it was perfect. So there so is a true. truth to that, that, well, for instance, uh, as you were talking, Uh, As you were talking, I was um, thinking about the fact that actually I fully committed and opened my heart to my wife after she was diagnosed. That love conquered my fear of being with a terminally ill person. Mm. Very um, powerful I, I'm, it didn't entirely conquer it. I had fear, not right. the whole eight and a half years, but you know, right. there were right. there were hard moments. but it was so clear to me that I had to follow my heart right. And so that's also a potential that you might have a a, a real um, I don't think I'm unusual, you no, know, you're I'm not. just a, I'm just a human being who had an experience. And that was the most profound kind of moment to realize, oh my gosh, I'm going to do this. Regardless of how, uh, you know, no sane person would say yes to that in their logical brain.
2: But love became your teacher. That's right. That's right, yeah. I said that as though it were a statement, but I really meant it as a question. So thank you for, for answering it.
1: Um, yeah. yeah I mean, becomes our teacher, because right. then that leads, you said something about, you know, um, life tells you how to live it. Right. Well, well it then that, that just, that just led to uh, many, 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 many things I would never have said yes to without that original Yes, but then I needed those things. Right. You know, it, it kind of um, all went together. So I'm, I'm intrigued by that notion of, of life telling you how to live it, that way of talking about it.
2: You know, I just, that phrase alone is so interesting because, you know, when I did the outline for the book, that phrase didn't show up anywhere. But um, there I was, you know, probably somewhere around chapter 10. And I, you know, went back to read everything and I noticed that there it was, like showing up in almost every chapter, this phrase, Life teaching us how to live it. And so not only was life teaching me how to live it, life itself was giving me the phrase, Life Teaching us how to live it. <laughs> And this it became a it became a theme that run ran all the way through the book and You know, it really brought me back to a moment I remember when I was grieving the death of my childhood friend, and it was 1965, and nobody knew what to do with grief. It was Elizabeth Kubler-Ross hadn't published anything yet, and um, we were in this small Midwestern town, and adults all felt like they needed to, you know, be stoic for the kids, and be strong, and and I was in tremendous amount of pain, and I and I loved to read, and so I went to the library one day, and I just stood outside the library doors on the steps and said, um, you know, dear, God, I went to church every single day. I was from a Catholic community, so there I was, deeply into my Catholicism, and uh, and, and 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 believing in angels, and 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 support from the other side is one of the greatest gifts that came to me from those early years. And so I just stood on the steps of that church, and, I mean, library, and prayed, please help me with a book that's going to make a difference so that I feel, some, feel better. And I ended up, I have no memory of what happened inside that library, but I came home with a book on reincarnation. Now, ah. I was a Catholic kid from a Catholic family and you think reincarnation, you know? But I found a way to make it work because in this book they talked about how the soul is the is the thread through many lives. And in Catholicism, they would say to us your soul is the thing that lives on after your body dies. And so I just kind of blended these two things together and made my own <laughs> it was the first it was the first uh, experience of making my own spiritual kind of framework to live by um, but i but that but the the, the point of the story is that life taught me how to live it life really there was. i became connected to something greater than me that i began to trust in immediately and it changed everything i went from you know a, a real Deep, deep despair to a sense of, of hope around that this wasn't the end of this little 11 year old girl's life, you know, that, that this m- murder and kidnapping wasn't how it, what was that all about, right? So when you think about it in a larger context, there's more spaciousness, there's, there's an ability to see a bigger a bigger story.
1: Well, um, I'll tell you what stands out to me about your story is the fact that you asked asked for help and received it. That that in some way, that we don't need to understand at all. Right. You 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 prayed for something that you needed desperately, and something came that helped.
2: That's right. That's exactly right.
1: And. That can really change, uh, change a person, can't right. it? When you're in that right. much agony and something yeah. helps, it really stands out, doesn't it? Right. Uh, and now it isn't about you know
2: that that phrase is so integrated into how I live my life that it isn't about necessarily praying for something and looking for an answer. It's about being awake and aware in the present moment and noticing that we are part of a living organism and there are many other living organisms around us. And there are ways in which we see the world that help navigate how we move through it if we are aware and awake in this present moment. And we'll be doing a lot of... Teaching about what the, in the nine-month course, a lot of teaching about that particular thing, a lot of encouraging, a lot of noticing, a lot of um, quiet meditation, and learning well, how hope, to follow the breath and become aware in the present moment and mindful.
1: I hope, Mariana, that people that are in your area will will go find you because I know it's going to be a great training. Uh, or work, you know, um, group. Thank you. Um, And we'll, I hope we'll stay in touch as we have intermittently, but maybe we can be a little more active about it. People go to, go to marianacacciatore.com, M-A-R-I-A-N-N-A-C-A-C-C-I-A-T-O-R-E.com to find Mariana's work. And Hopefully, if people sign up for your mailing list, they'll also be um, they'll also know when your book finds a publisher and gets published and it becomes available. Yes.
2: Yes, and I would also Say. like to teach this um, one day as a webinar course so that it's not limited Fabulous. to people here in Tucson. Great. So, uh,
1: yeah, um, thank you so, so much. Of course. And next week, I want to let people know I'll have rob gore. his His book, Dear Andrew," chronicles his grief following the death of his eighteen year old's eight year old son, excuse me, who was hit by a truck right in front of him. This has yeah. been good grief with oh Cheryl God. Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation.
0: Thank you so much for joining us for good grief.